Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and we're back again. Um, and there's also going to be another live stream tomorrow, so don't miss that. I'll, I'll share a little bit about that. But we're we're back again to talk about a topic that you don't normally uh, hear about um, if you do presuppositional apologetics and you're familiar with transcendental arguments and things like that. You might be familiar with uh, what we call the Christianity objection uh, to the transcendental argument for God's existence. Big, scary, fancy words, um, but not a big deal. We want to talk about it today. I have a friend of mine on uh, with me today, uh, Joshua Pillows. I've had him on before. Um, he actually did a debate on my channel. I moderated a debate between uh, himself and David Palman on the issue of presuppositionalism versus evidentialism. It was a debate um, on apologetic methodology, which I highly recommend. If you're interested in apologetic methodology and you want to see what a uh, an evidentialist approach looks like uh, that is represented by uh, David Palman and a presuppositional uh, methodology, which is represented by Joshua Pillows, you want to check out that debate. And it's um, I probably should have put it in the comments somewhere or in the description, but uh, you can just type in presuppositionalism versus evidentialism and it will pop up. Um, excellent, respectful discussion, and I think it displays both of the um, methods quite well. So uh, totally check that out. Now, a couple of things. Um, on September 22nd, I'll be having Dr. Lane Tipton on from Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, we're going to be discussing his new book on Van Til and Van Til's um, Trinitarian theology. So that's going to be uh, super awesome. Now, all the way in December, I will I'll be having uh, Pastor Jeff Durbin on. Um, and so I'm super excited about that. It's a little far off. Um, you know, I shared the thumbnail uh, a little uh, early and people are like, oh my goodness, that's so far away. Why'd you share it? I don't know. I, I tried really hard to get him. And when he said yes, I made the thumbnail and I was super excited to share. So there you go. Um, and so tomorrow I also will have uh, someone who was on the show once before, if you remember that super awesome episode we did entitled The Apologetics, or I'm sorry, not The uh, Apologetics Smorgasbord. I think it was called uh, The Epic Presup Roundtable or something like that, where I had a bunch of different apologists on to discuss everything presuppositional apologetics. Um, we had um, Jimmy Lee. Uh, Jimmy Lee is well known in the Facebook world. There is a, a Facebook page uh, on on Facebook uh, entitled Reformed Presuppositional Apologetics, and he posts regularly there. A pretty sharp guy, knows his stuff. And tomorrow I will be having him on to discuss um, the topic of the Old Testament and the philosophy of evidence. The Old Testament and the philosophy of evidence. Now, from what I gather, he suggested this topic because he thought it might be interesting and it sounded super fascinating. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's going to try to show that the Old Testament kind of creates a good context for us to have uh, develop a philosophy of how we should interpret uh, evidence and data and things like that. So if if it has nothing to do with that, my bad. All right. So um, so that's it. So we have an episode tomorrow as well. Um, you want to. Uh, you know, check that out when it comes. Now, I do know that there are some students here of mine. I teach at a Christian private school and sometimes they uh, uh, pop in on live stream. So before I invite my guest, I would like to say hi to uh, Tatiana. Hello. How are you? And um, I hope this discussion is not too far over your head, um, but this definitely requires a little bit of background on the topic. So our topic is presuppositional apologetics, transcendental argument. Okay for uh, the existence of God. And we're going to be addressing a specific argument against the transcendental argument 
as us presuppositionalists like to use it. And that um, uh, argument is uh, called the the objection uh, of uh, the Christianity objection. So if that sounds weird, we're going to explain it in just a few moments. So without without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest, Joshua Pillows. How's it going, man? I'm good. How are you, bro? I'm doing well, and I'm super excited that you were able to come back on. Me too. I always love being here. It's always a pleasure. Well, that's awesome. I enjoy, I mean, there. I've had you on a bunch of times, but um, I totally uh, recommend folks to look up Revealed Apologetics, Joshua Pillows, and he's been on a couple of times and they have been excellent uh, discussions. So um, you and I are proponents of a school of apologetic methodology known as presuppositional apologetics. Um, to narrow that down, we come from what we would call a Vantillian flavor of presuppositionalism. There's kind of a a broad spectrum uh, as to where someone could land on that, um, on that, you know, methodology. Um, why don't you explain to everyone very briefly, what is presuppositionalism in general? What is the transcendental argument in particular? And then from there, we'll kind of branch off into addressing this, um, this Christianity objection against the transcendental argument. Sure. So presuppositionalism broadly speaking, argues over presuppositions, foundational assumptions mm -hmm. about one's uh, view of ethics, about one's view of reality, one's view of knowledge. And what we um, attempt to do in our apologetic is to compare our foundational assumptions with our unbelievers' foundational assumptions. And we ask the question, well, which worldview can make sense out of why experience is intelligible to begin with? You know, why is nature uniform? Why can we do science? How can we make sense out of human consciousness, laws of logic, and so forth. And so broadly speaking, a presuppositional approach analyzes the presuppositions of the Christian and then of the non-Christian and um, puts both of them under scrutiny to see which worldview can make sense out of intelligible experience. And so that is what we call the transcendental argument, which is a proof that the God is the necessary precondition for the intelligibility of human experience, the Christian God specifically. Um, and it is through his um, existence and his creative power that we can make sense out of um, the uniformity of our experience, the intelligibility of our experience. And so while we do analyze presuppositions and we utilize a reductio argument, we try to show that the other non-Christian position is reduces to absurdity. What we're ultimately arguing is um, worldviews in general, which one can supply these necessary preconditions for you know this very discussion we're having right now. Mm -hmm. let alone anything else that we um, ascribe intelligibility to in our experience. Sure. Okay. So when we talk about presuppositionalism as an apologetic methodology and the transcendental argument as a specific argument, um, do you see uh, presuppositionalism and transcendental argumentation essentially and necessarily connected? Uh, for instance, um, I had a discussion with a brother uh, a few episodes ago over this very topic. Do you see the transcendental argument as an essential feature to the broader methodology of, of presuppositionalism? Yeah, because if, if we take out transcendental considerations um, and we're just analyzing presuppositions, all we're really doing is in analyzing presuppositions, we're just showing that um, the our opponent's position is absurd. Okay. And if we leave it at that, it's like, oh, okay, so what? I mean, how what's left of our apologetic? All we've shown is um, the opponent we're debating, his position re reduces to absurdity, but that says nothing about Christianity in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we need to argue transcendentally, which is to argue for necessary preconditions. And we okay. tether that we tether that to um, presuppositions, 
can the unbelievers presuppositions make sense of intelligibility, these preconditions or can the Christians? Mm -hmm. Okay. So when, pardon, when we talk about, pardon, <clears throat> almost choked on something. I don't know what I, I almost cried <laughs> just there for a second. <laughs> it's like, I have such a way with words, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to have a dead, an ugly death on the live stream. You know, I'm just like, ah, you know, I'm going to pass out. Uh, we don't want that to happen. Um, uh, can you show us then what is the transcendental argument? I know we make a distinction between transcendental arguments in general, and then there's the uh, unique transcendental argument that is utilized by uh, Van Tillian's. Um, Greg Bonson, of course, comes to mind. What is the specific argument, transcendental argument, that demonstrates the truth of the Christian worldview? So someone will, someone will make a distinction between, say, a transcendental argument that demonstrates that a God is the necessary preconditions for knowledge. How would you demonstrate that it's the triune God? How does, what does that argument look? How is it defended? How is it laid out? And then maybe we can kind of talk, uh, we can kind of shift into the discussion of some possible objections, more specifically the objection that comes from uh, Christianity, as we'll explain it in a bit. Yeah, our, 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 our apologetic, our argument is predicated off of revelation from God. Okay. And so immediately there's um, a huge antithesis, a contrast. So if someone wants to say, I can make sense out of X, Y, and Z, if I conceive of this particular God, it's like, sure. okay, great. great. But all you're giving me is some conceivable, hypothetical, almost purely formal scenario. But okay. as Christians, we start with an actual Bible, a concrete, material, um, substantive proof and revelation from the triune God. Can I interrupt you real quick? I do sure. apologize just to clarify. So you're saying when we as presuppositionalists who are arguing transcendentally, we are not positing the truth of the triune God as a hypothetical entity Correct. that may or may not exist. Let's go and prove him together. You're Correct. starting with he's there and here. Now we need to ask the question why he must be there in order for anything else. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, he's there specifically because he's revealed himself to me okay. and to you and to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so that we are, as Paul says, without excuse. Okay. And so we are starting, Van Til was adamant throughout his career and his, all his writings. We start with this God, this triune God, concretely with the actuality of the book, he says. I think that's in common grace. He says that we start with the actuality of the Bible. So we're not starting with speculation. We're not trying to find logical consistency and coherence or, you know, abductive reasoning. What's the best explanation for this intelligible experience we experience? Um, we're starting concretely. God has revealed himself. He's shown himself. And so we're going mm -hmm. to predicate our argument off of that revelation. Hmm. Okay. So, so what does the argument look like? Do you, do you typically present the argument in like a deductive form is, um, with premises that lead to a conclusion? Is there a way you can lay that out? and kind of just in a thumbnail sketch, demonstrate to us the, the transcendental necessity for the triune God? Yeah, I, I tend to, personally, I tend to avoid a deductive formulation. Okay. Not because it's defective, but because if you formulate it in a deductive form, whether it's modus ponens or whatever, um, okay. people who don't fully understand this line of argumentation will assume, oh, so it's a deductive proof, but mm -hmm. it's not. It's a transcendental proof, but we just formulated it deductively. And okay. so it kind of muddies the water, so to speak. Um, I have a particular syllogism, a particular argument I use that's more or less catered to a transcendental proof. Okay. Um, but I don't formulate it as like a modus ponens, if P, then Q sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
All right. So, so what does it look like? So prove, prove to us that the triune God exists transcendentally. And then we'll talk about the, um, uh, the objection that, uh, is the topic of our discussion today. Uh, well, if, if we stripped the argument of any contents and we just left it at variables P and Q, the mm -hmm. transcendental form or a transcendental form would be uh, premise one would be for P to be the case, Q needs to be the case because Q is a necessary precondition for P. Yeah. The second premise, the minor premise is, well, P is the case. And so the conclusion is therefore Q has to be the case since it's necessary for P. Yeah. Um, and so that would be the syllogism um, I use. That's, that was what was, championed by Bonson later in his life. Mm -hmm. And it's just distinct. It's not a, oh, it's modus ponens. It's deductive. No, it's it's distinct. But when we incorporate the Christian worldview, we would then just insert the um, components of that. So we would say in order for intelligibility to be the case, Christianity must be true. Or you could say um, more narrowly, God must exist. The triune God must exist mm -hmm. in order to make sense out of intelligible experience. Sure. He's a necessary precondition. Okay. Then the second premise is, well, we have intelligible experience. So then the conclusion is, therefore, the triune God of Christianity exists or okay. Christianity is true. Sure. Okay. And so, uh, okay. So we often hear when the argument is presented, well, saying, saying that doesn't make it so, right? So if we say, you know, if intelligibility is possible, Christianity is true. Okay. That's the claim, right? So um, I'm not asking you for a fully robust, like right now at the top of your head, lay out the whole thing. But if you can give us, again, in a thumbnail sketch, what does the defense of that premise look like? It's a good question because I didn't tell you this, but I was on a Clubhouse last night in a room okay. full of atheists. I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was slightly... Um, out of it because I'd already taken like some stuff to help me fall asleep, but then I got carried away and I was just so time out. You went on clubhouse while on drugs. basically. And I really hope that's not going to end up on YouTube or somewhere because it's not a good picture of who I am. But this is Joshua. He's like, I'm on clubhouse. Let me debate some ages right now. But let, let me tell you because of that, they were so open to everything I said, like, because I wasn't being, obscurantist or arrogant or whatever sure. um because i was you know under some you know sedate, sedate of drugs <laughs> um but we had a very fruitful discussion and that was that kept coming back over and over again because there were other presuppositionalists that would come and go in that room well just saying it doesn't prove it yeah so who cares i mean it's just a tautology at that point i where's the substance behind it so it's a good question um the answer to that is simple and it lies in the fact that all you have to do is stand on the christian worldview on the christian's presuppositions the christian worldview as it stands from the bible and when you analyze the christian worldview you all you see um that wow all of a sudden everything makes sense we can make sense out of um, consciousness reliability of sense perception <laughs> excuse me uniformity in nature so science causality laws of logic and um, moral absolutes and stuff like that so the uh, proof of that, the illustration of that is to ask our unbelieving opponent, well, stand on my worldview for a second. And, and let's just go over what my worldview entails. I mean, you'll see that uh, Christianity supplies these preconditions for intelligible experience. Mm -hmm. And now if we step into your worldview and, and apply what it entails, you're reduced to absurdity. But not only are you reduced to absurdity, you have to assume my worldview in order to even argue against it or bring it into question. Yeah. So the answer to the criticism of oh well just asserting it doesn't make it so the answer is we'll stand on the christian's worldview for the sake of the argument 
right? Be charitable. We want to be charitable. That's how you refute another position. You have to assume that what they're saying is true. Stand in our position and you'll see, wow, we supply the transcendentals. We can make sense out of intelligible experience. Mm -hmm. So what, okay. So I, I say this all the time. People say, well, wait a minute, bro. All right. This is why I always do when I do my impression of the opponent, right? Minute, <laughs> yeah, bro, it's true. right? <laughs> it's the same reason. thing every time. <laughs> Apparently every atheist is from like California and they're like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, right. You're asking me to step into your worldview, but you haven't demonstrated. I don't want to step into your worldview. You demonstrate to me. So, so a lot of times people will shift it and say, so they don't, they don't want to participate in your attempt to demonstrate it because your attempt to demonstrate it requires that they hypothetically step into your worldview so that they can see the coherency, how it works, that it in fact account accounts for the things that are under discussion. How would you respond to someone who says, I'm not going to step in, into your worldview right now because I want to see you demonstrate your God. You're trying to shift. You're trying to get me to throw out my worldview so that you don't have to defend your perspective. I'm sure you've heard something along these lines. That was also in that, in that chat. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it was, I, knew it. I mean, and I, I love it because it really shows the climate of today. This was not a thing back in Bonson's day. We didn't have social media. We didn't have all this, these connections. And so you see that lacking in his work. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, yeah. So if someone wants to say, well, I want demonstration. I don't want to stand in your worldview, right? Because I don't accept it. Well, I can respond to that, to that in one of two ways. I could say, um, okay, well, I don't accept atheism. I don't want you to, I don't want you to argue for it because I don't accept it. And if I have to assume it, that's not proof. So in other words, I can just turn it back on the atheist or whomever I'm talking to, if that's the game we're playing. Mm -hmm. um, but the demonstration is straightforward. It's simple. Stand in my worldview. What are the metaphysical and epistemological implications of Christianity? And you'll see that it supplies the preconditions. But if an atheist wants to say, no, no, that's not legitimate. I want you know some objective, neutral demonstration or proof. Of course, we know neutrality is impossible. But right. that is the demonstration. And for anyone who wants to reject that, wants to reject the principle of charity, which is what everyone should be doing. That's how you reduce a position to absurdity. Like I said earlier, you have to assume your opponent's correct for the sake of the argument. If you're going to assume something different than what your opponent's espousing, then you're not critiquing your opponent internally. It's going to inevitably be external. Right. So the demonstration is just through stand on my worldview. <clears throat> okay. And so that... That's what the argument will look like regardless if you're talking to an atheist, if you're talking to an agnostic, if you're talking to a Hindu, if you're talking to a Buddhist, if you're talking to a Platonist, regardless, the conversation will be generally the same. Uh, if you want me to show you that my position is true, hypothetically grant its truth and I will show you. Grant Granting its truth, look, it actually provides those preconditions. <clears throat> and then we we'll do the same for the other perspective and show, look on its own terms, this internal critique, right? On its own terms, things don't work out. And of course, you know, that's where the debate's gonna have to be. Now, that is not the main topic of our discussion today, so I want to take a moment to shift now, okay? I'm assuming that everyone listening here and everyone that will listen will be somewhat familiar with the transcendental argument you laid out and the sorts of discussions related to that. So I wanna shift then to our main point under discussion, and that is the issue of Christianity. But before we do that, I'd like to thank Glastine Russell, former student of mine. Thank you so much for your $5 super chat. Glastine says, hey, Mr. Ayala, I'm an official college student now. That is so awesome. I was her uh, uh, 12th grade uh, teacher 
and uh, she's an awesome, awesome student. Just hope all is well. Many blessings to you and your family. Thank you so much. Just to throw it out there for people who are listening, if you have any questions about presuppositional apologetics, um, specifically apologetics more generally, or the transcendental argument or Christianity, which we're about to go through now, please feel free to leave a question in the comments and preface your question with question so that we can differentiate it from uh, the normal run-of-the-mill discussions that happen in the comment section. All right, Joshua. Okay, I gotta, I gotta put my glasses back on again. All right, <laughs> all right. Listen, okay. You're telling me that only the Christian worldview can provide the preconditions for intelligibility. Okay, again, we're assuming people are familiar with this. And you say, as a Trinitarian, that only the triune God can account for unity and plurality, and somehow this is related to uh, intelligible experience and knowledge, so on and so forth. But suppose you have a worldview that is similar to Christianity in almost every single way, except in just a small, you know, just little features here and there that are different. Suppose we have a triune God, but it's not the Christian worldview. So you have a metaphysical grounding for unity and plurality, these sorts of things. How do you avoid what we would call the, the counterexample of the Christian worldview, Christianity? You have one in the many accounted for metaphysically because the Christian God is both a one in the many. He reveals himself. There is an epistemological link between his creation and his revelation. And so we could account for epistemology, right? We have a coherent epistemology, our metaphysic. We have a triune personal God. We have an epistemology that triune personal God reveals such that we could know, have knowledge, intelligible experience, so on and so forth. How would you respond to that objection to the transcendental argument, the objection uh, uh, from Christianity? Right. Well, <laughs> I thought you were going to let me explain it. So I was like, oh, oh I'm sorry. Yeah, right. easy. No, 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 no. It's okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the Christian says, well, feel free to can't... expand if you think I've left any significant. Uh, no, no, you, part you got it. You're good. No. Okay. I don't want to be like, oh, I've got it. I'm arrogant or I don't want to be like that. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, the Christian basically says, Van Til, you've got it right. You have a great argument. It's solid. It gets the job done. You can make sense out of intelligibility. But the problem is it gets the job done, which means it's sufficient. But that doesn't mean it's necessary mm. because another conceivable world who can come along like you say, an ape Christianity in every way except for one or two fundamental um, points or premises and come to the same conclusion. We can make sense out of one and many in science and so forth. And it's like, so there you go, Until I commend you, but it's only sufficient. It's not necessarily mm. true. And so the first thing that um, I would say to a Christian, whatever it may be, and, and Mike Butler um, in his thesis, Bonson's um, student uh, refers to Christianity as being a quadrinity. And I kind of just like sticking to one example because it doesn't really matter, but let's just say God is four in one. Okay. And the Christian says, well, Van Til, I can conceive of another worldview that answers it in every single way. So therefore yours is not necessary. It's only sufficient. Now, right off the bat, the irony in all of this is that is, is the phrase I can conceive of because what Van Til is arguing is metaphysical. He's arguing for the actuality of Christianity. It's not some merely conceptual transcendental argument that's more modest. He's ambitious in his attempt, like I said before. I don't know. Was it here or was it before we went live? Anyway, 
Um, Vantil argues concretely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We start from the authority of the Bible, the actuality of the book. And so immediately we have a problem because Vantil's up here in metaphysics land, giving an ambitious transcendental argument. The Christian comes along and he says, well, I can conceive of another worldview. Well, that's great, but we're not talking about conceiving things up here. We're talking about actual, actual states of affairs. And so before we even settle the dispute with a Christian, we have to pull him up and say, no, 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 we're not conceiving anything. If you're going to refute Christian theism as it's been um, posited in an orthodox fashion, you have to likewise argue metaphysically. And right. so basically you have to correct the critic from the outset before you can attempt to refute him. You have to help him out. You have to pull him up by his mm -hmm. bootstraps, mm -hmm. so to speak. So you first have to make it uh, clear that the Christian needs to be arguing metaphysically. That he says, oh, well, I can conceive of a similar worldview doesn't say anything against Van Til's because we're not on the same playing field. We're not even playing the same ball game at that point. Right. We need to get to the same stadium before we can hash this out. So the problem already is a difference in transcendental arguments. So so the Frischton is arguing uh, in, in hypothetical conceptual land where Van Til is not arguing in hypothetical conceptual land. He's saying, no. I'm starting with the metaphysical reality of the Christian God and arguing on that basis. He's not a theory out there. He's not what some people would call um, the God hypothesis, right? Right. That's not what Van Til is arguing. Oh, okay. Well, someone might say, well, wait a minute. You can't start with the actuality of God. Here it comes, Joshua. This is one we <laughs> hear all the time. You can't start with the metaphysical reality of God because that is begging the, the question. question. No way. <laughs> Wait a minute. We have to do the home alone. Ready? Ah, we know it's like, we've never, <laughs> we've never heard that one before. No. Um, yeah. So, okay. So we'll, we'll return back to some different variations of Christianity, but um, what do you say to someone to say, well, wait a minute, you can't just start with the metaphysical reality of God. What's wrong with that assertion? What is the misunderstanding of the nature of transcendental argumentation when someone says uh, something along those lines? I love that we get to Stroud. <laughs> Stroud's my favorite, favorite criticism of all. Um, okay. Yeah, so basically it's, it's illegitimate to start with a Christian metaphysical scheme. We have to start with ourselves and then work outward. Okay. So there you go, Vantil. That's illegitimate. Well, the comeback to that is, says who? I'm sorry. Uh, that was just completely taken for granted. Now, how about you prove that for me, Mr. You know, critic or whoever it may be? Because as it turns out, the person giving that criticism is himself or herself starting out with her own metaphysical picture, namely something of a Kantian divide or an egocentric picture. We have to start with ourselves before we can work out. Mm -hmm. And as as Christians are starting with God and us together, we're starting with an external world. And so we have two antithetical worldviews. And so for one to say, well, it's illegitimate for you to start with your metaphysical scheme. Well, then why is it legitimate for him to start with his metaphysical scheme? Mm -hmm. Everyone starts metaphysically somewhere. And this type of critic just completely takes it for granted. Everyone starts somewhere. And the question is, which worldview makes sense? So to criticize a starting point is just a moot point in and of itself. And moreover, it's self-contradictory because he's taking his position for granted. Doing mm -hmm. the same thing. He's, for, he's doing the very thing he says we shouldn't do. Right. So it's not, it's not you either start with God or you start with, with self. That's a false dichotomy. The presuppositionalist will say we start with both. We start with a worldview that is uh, that constitutes the the metaphysical actuality of God and myself as a knower, as a conceiver. Yeah, and and even Sproul, for instance, just 
would not get this. And I could link the video of where he says, we can't start with God consciousness because we have to start with self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, Dr. Sproul, I love you. And I know you're a Vantillian right now. Up in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's just a, a false dichotomy. Really? Sure. How, how do we know it's an either or? Because given my worldview, given the Imago Dei, we're made in God's image. Quite everything we do quite literally reflects um, God thinking, man thinking, um, is God thinking. Revelation is permeable everywhere. It's inescapable. So we start with God and man. That's the metaphysical picture we begin with. And therefore, the metaphysical picture we begin with starts with an external reality. We don't start with ourselves and work out. Well, I don't know, Joshua. It looks like you're confusing ontology with epistemology. <laughs> there you go. Uh, why don't you address that real quick? We'll get the we'll get some of the elephants in the room out of the way and then we'll return back to Christianity, okay? Yeah. Um, uh, so how would you engage that? Cuz this will inevitably come up if you're discussing presuppositionalism with someone who's familiar with these kinds of discussions yeah. and you see the the major talking points come up. I mean, that's yeah, fair. Uh, I mean, these are good yeah. these are good questions. They're not dumb questions like why are you asking that? How could you think we're confusing ontology with epistemology or that we're begging the question? These are perfectly legitimate questions that they should come up and we should address them as presuppositionalists. So, so how would you engage that? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I just want to say, I, I love these objections because it shows that the critic has at least a basic understanding of the transcendental program Van Til's given us, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's not something like, Oh, Van Til was an idealist or, oh, precepts hate evidence. It's heresy or whatever. And, and it's just like, come on, man. Like, seriously. <laughs> but these kinds of criticisms, I, I love it because it's more philosophically rigorous. And I respect and commend the critic for actually having some knowledge of this program. But to answer that question, um, it's a legit, it is a valid criticism, not because the apologetic is guilty of it, but because apologists are guilty of it. Um, particularly those who are less learned. And I don't mean to belittle any presuppositionalists who are sure. learning, but it is very common for that to be the case. Well, you start with an epistemic premise and then you conclude God exists. Well, that doesn't follow at all, right? Um, so how do you rectify that? Well, the rectification or the solution lies in the fact that Van Til himself endorsed both. So we can talk about metaphysics, but ultimately, or I'm sorry, we can talk about epistemology, but it ultimately is going to entail metaphysics because the two are inextricably linked. So we could start with either one, but as long as we um, propound and stress the metaphysical implications, the existence of God, not just that we have to believe in him, the existence of God, then we're not confusing anything. Van Til's argument can be purely conceptual, if you want to put it that way, but I can quote Van Til directly where he says that God's existence is necessary for X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So while presuppositionalists may confuse it, and that is very true, the apologetic itself does not succumb to that criticism. Mm. All right. Well, let's kind of backpedal then to our Christianity objection and this idea that there could be similar similar worldviews. Uh, would you say the worldview in which a triune God exists and reveals himself through a scriptures and the Bible, um, yet the Bible lacks a couple of books? Would that be a completely different worldview? Because I know we, we argue an, as a worldview system, and part of our system is that God has, in fact, revealed himself in the 66 books of the Bible. Um, yeah. How would you say, well, there's a, a triune God. Um, <clears throat> he's revealed himself in nature and scripture, but his scripture um, lacks uh, the book of James. And let's go with Philemon. Titus. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was brought up in Clubhouse, too, last night. 
Um, and again, I wait, I wait, 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 wait. Someone's asking, what is Clubhouse? I don't want to answer that question. I'll, I'll answer it. I'll answer it. Some wise man told me, and I'm not going to say who, but a wise man once told me it's the underbelly of Discord. It's just like a cesspool of intellectual and moral degeneracy and there's some and, good there's some good people there but but yes, there are some good people it's like there, the tattooing yes. of the internet <laughs> it's yeah so it's like discord but down a tier and yet people still go to it anyway so that's basically what it is it's free if you want to join it is free. but anyway. <laughs> it is free um oh goodness what were we talking about oh okay yeah so if if some of the books were taken out right and this is where we have to draw a, a fine line um, between a Christian objection and a non-Christian objection, because mm. um, if the book of Philemon or, or Titus or Jude or whatever was taken out, it has no significant bearing on the Christian worldview as a whole. In fact, I would help the critic. Like I had to help the Christian get up to metaphysics, right? It's not conceivable. It's metaphysical. So mm -hmm. I will help this critic now and say, guess what? The canon wasn't completed till the fourth century. Uh-oh. Well, that's not good. We didn't have a full revelation until then. So I guess this is just some late, you know, unbiblical apologetic that we're giving. Well, the answer to that is, and even in the Old Testament, the Israelites had revelation that we don't have today. They had special, you know, privileges that they mm. had and witnessed and experienced that we don't have today. Um, in the time of Paul, when he gives his apologetic in Acts 17, he had revelation from God, uh, especially on the road to Damascus and onward. And so what's the point? Well, the point is God's revelation permeates everywhere. It's permeated everywhere since Adam and Eve, let alone the Old Testament, the early church before the canon was compiled, and even today. So if someone says, well, I believe in the Apocrypha, or I don't believe in, in Titus or whatever, um, it has no significant bearing on the Christian worldview as a whole. I get the mm -hmm. Apocrypha has some contradictions. Uh, maybe I wouldn't allow that. But in terms of removing a small book here or there, it's nothing significant. Because what mm. we're arguing for is the metaphysical structure of Christianity. And so if I have a one-page book in the Bible that doesn't necessarily contribute or add anything to that metaphysical scheme in any significant sense, then if it's removed or if God you know, from eternity past said, I won't have the book of Jude in the Bible, that's nothing significant to the Christian worldview. So th those are, you know, yeah. But you would say that some books contain content of the metaphysical situation that Absolutely. would be. So, so, for example, if God gave us uh, a Bible that didn't have the Gospels or didn't or have some portions of Paul, yeah. yeah, or Genesis, yeah, yeah, then that would be a different uh, that would be a different situation. Totally different ballgame okay. at that point. Yeah, that's a big problem. Okay. But yeah, I like that objection. You can have some books removed. Not saying you should because it's permissible. But God has given his given us his canon. But sure. yes, you can have some books removed without significantly affecting the Christian worldview in any sense like that. Yeah. Now I want to mix things up. I usually do questions towards the end, but I want to kind of intersperse a couple in the middle if that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. Cause I don't want, I want to make sure we get to them. Um, so uh, Nem to, I can't pronounce that. Sorry. I do apologize. Uh, this person uh, says uh, it seems that Joshua's response is that the Christian's worldview doesn't exist yet. But Van Til just doesn't deal with conceived theoreticals. The argument functions as a critique of coherentism. I'm not sure what they're asking, but perhaps they're getting at the idea of how can you respond to a worldview that has not yet been presented or something along those lines. I apologize if I miss an understanding. I mean, it's just the way it's typed out. It's very hard to figure out what he's asking, but uh, or she's asking. I have no idea. Um, do you know what's going on there? Yeah, um, I don't know about the word yet. 
because all, all I've been saying is the friction has to turn his conceivable conceptual argument and make it, um, well, materialize it, make it metaphysical, saying, no, this is the case. Right. It's been the case for 2,000 years. Not that, oh, it just popped into existence. And we've, you know, right. um, in terms of Van Til not dealing with conceived theoreticals, uh, yeah, you'd have to ask what it means. But no, Van Til deals with all sorts of non-Christian thought, and they all apex at the same problems of like pure impersonality and being like Plato, brute facts, um, sheer chance and possibility, um, governing predication, and therefore there's sure. no explanation to intelligibility. So it's not as if, well, we're just critiquing some sort of coherentist view uh, of a particular coherentist view, and hey, it's internally inconsistent. We're talking uh, about metaphysics here, and Van Til does talk about or does critique any conceived theoretical worldview that could be out there. Mm, okay. I hope that makes now, sense. what about uh, the objection that um, refuting competitors, competing worldviews, or non-existent hypotheticals that may be true, that may be come into existence later, that you know, worldviews that we haven't heard of yet? How can you demonstrate the truth of the triune God without engaging in an inductive refutation of all of the options out there? And you know, Joshua, this is a common, right? You can't, yeah. you can't prove Christianity by simply refuting options that are presented to you because there's just countless number of options. Um, right, how would right. you address that argument um, to show that the transcendental argument, as we understand it, does not require you to engage in that exercise? Again, I love this criticism because it has an understanding of what Van Til is getting at. And for the third time in how long has it been? Like 37 minutes? This was on Clubhouse last night. <laughs> Again. All of this was on Clubhouse. Uh, okay. It, yeah, it, seriously, okay. it's it's Clubhouse, in the culture today, in atheistic uh, culture as pertains to uh, debating Christians. So we need to know these kind of criticisms. Sure. And there was an apologist in that room that was trying to answer it, and he wasn't doing it. I knew what he was trying to get at, but he wasn't saying it the right way. Okay. Um, the atheists were right. There's no way you can prove Christianity is necessarily true from an inductive survey of worldviews. Because first of all, you'd have to go through every every worldview that's posited today. We have 8 billion people on this rock. But even then, if you could do that, you'd have to refute every other conceivable hypothetical worldview in the future. And it's impossible given our finitude. So you can't inductively prove a necessity. Um Okay, well then, oh, let's do it deductively. Well, I could form a deductive argument and prove that Christianity is necessary. But the problem with a deductive argument is it's purely formal. It doesn't tell me anything about the external world. All I'm showing is, hey, I can make a valid argument. The conclusion follows from the premises. But that doesn't have any bearing whatsoever on reality itself. Sure. Okay, so inductive reasoning doesn't work. Deductive reasoning is really purely formal. Um, abductive reasoning is reasoning to the best explanation. It's clearly not what Van Til is saying. He's arguing for necessity. Um, so then that brings us all the way back to transcendental reasoning. We argue for um, necessary preconditions. How is it that we're even able to predicate right now or even bring anything else into question to communicate with one another? And Can you we briefly say, define what predication means for someone who's like, man, I really like what he's saying, but he just used that word and I have no idea what that means. <laughs> yeah. How, how do we ascribe properties to something? How do, how do we work? How do we talk in a subject predicate relationship or how okay. do we reason discursively through a line of uh, reasoning, inferencing? Okay. Um, and so, well, the answer to that is just to go all the way back to what I said a while ago, which is transcendental reasoning, stand on the Christian worldview for the sake of the argument. It supplies the transcendentals. Oh, but wait a second. 
there can only be one worldview. You can't be two realities that contradict one another. So Christianity supplies the transcendentals. If you reject Christianity, you're not only reduced to absurdity, but you have to assume Christianity. You have to assume the very thing you're arguing against. And so the proof of necessity of the uniqueness proof of, of tag of Christianity is transcendental. Stand on its own terms. It supplies the transcendentals. And therefore, you have to assume it's true in order to even argue against it. Okay. Okay. So this is good. So uh, when we say that the Christian worldview is provides the only transcendental foundation for knowledge and intelligible experience, can you unpack in more detail why there must be one, only one transcendental foundation? Mm -hmm. And if Christianity is uh, a precondition, it does account for those, then it must be the only worldview. Mm -hmm. So that if Christianity does provide the necessary preconditions, then it follows it must be the only one. Can you unpack that? Because when you listen to Bonson's lectures, his lectures are awesome. And I think the majority of what you've learned is listening from lectures. So if anyone's uh, interested in like, well, how did uh, Joshua learn all this stuff? Actually listening to Bonson lectures and, and reading the books and things. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but this particular point is either garbled because of a bad recording or is not fully laid out in a, in a way that would probably be more useful to the average person. So um, let's let's go the Highlander route. There can be only one. Why? Yeah. And why is Christianity the one? Yeah, well, um, and I, I'm sure I brought this up in past times I've been here, but he did bring this up um, in the summer of 95, a few months before he passed, well, really when I was born. And... Um, but it's in a lecture series and it's nowhere in any of his writings that I'm aware of anywhere. It's not in his yeah. last book, his Van Til's apologetic. So that's why this always comes back over and over again. He, he should have written this down. Um, but so the answer to why there can only be one, you don't even need to like talk about transcendental considerations here. Just ask someone, um, well, or just say, it's true that we exist on earth. We all live on earth. But then tell them it's also true that we don't exist on earth at the same time and in the same sense. Now, 99% of people will tell you that's stupid. That's impossible. That's absurd. That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And so just at face value, you don't even have to talk about Van Til or transcendental considerations. In the nature okay. of the case, there can only be one reality. If there are contradictory realities, it doesn't even make sense that there are contradictory realities because that has to. you have to assume there's one reality in terms of which you can talk about contradictory realities. I'm probably going too fast. I love this sort of stuff. That's okay. That's if okay. I need to slow down, just let me yeah, know. Yeah, slow, slow down just a bit, because I want to make, I don't, I, I'm trying my best to yeah, get I'm sorry. sorts I'm of sorry. questions. No, 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 it's not, not you. I'm trying my best to get these sorts of questions out, because I know these are the questions that a lot yeah. of the critics are asking. So I'm I'm trying to do them a solid and say, hey, man, that's a good question. Let's, I'll try to address it, you know, and ask, you know, my guest, or if I have an opportunity mm -hmm. to explain it. But I think, in my opinion, um, I think you explain it much better than I do. Um, and so I think you're doing an excellent job so far. But if you can kind of just a little bit Hold more slowly up. unpack back that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're doing an excellent job, and I appreciate it. All right. How about I put it this way? Um, a reality, a single reality is necessary for this to even be happening, for anything to be happening, to talk, to doubt, like Descartes would say. There has to be some sort of reality, right? And so we could say that a reality is a transcendental to experience. It's a necessary precondition. If there is no reality, then there's nothingness, and this wouldn't even be happening. So there has to be a reality, a definite objective um, grounding or metaphysical view. That has to be true. Okay. So okay. that's easy to follow. But then someone comes along and says, oh, I agree with that. But there's also another reality that's true at the same time. 
And in the same sense, it's also objective. And in this reality, I don't exist, but I do exist in this other reality. And mm. so what are we left with? Well, I have one reality where I exist and another one where I don't exist to use my existence as an example. So I have two realities that contradict one another. And if that's the case, you can't even make sense of that claim to begin with. It's completely self-refuting. There has sure. to be one concrete reality by which you can posit anything you wish. Even to deny that there's a reality, you have to assume that there's a reality. But there mm -hmm. can't be this reality. And then there's another reality where you know, the flying spaghetti monster is true and Josh Pillows doesn't exist at the mm -hmm. same time. And I'm not yeah. talking about the multiverse theory or anything. I'm talking about you know, one holistic, objective view of reality as a whole. Right. Right. And so in the nature of the case, there can only be one true reality. And then connecting this to Van Til and Christianity, we can make sense out of this reality, right? Even atheists and skeptics will agree, and Kant would agree, there is an external world. There is an external reality, but we can never know of it. We're right. stuck and confined in an egocentric picture. But Van Til has realized and taken Kant's program and said, no, with Christianity, with that revelation, we know what this one reality is. And there can only be one reality. Because if there are two realities that contradict one another, then you've lost unity, you've lost coherence, and therefore you've lost intelligibility. This isn't even possible. Okay. So that if Christian, because that, that's the case, if Christianity's worldview does account for intelligible experience, which one of the ways we demonstrate that is laying out the Christian system mm -hmm. and inviting the unbeliever to internally critique the system, right? Yeah, go ahead. You know, it's like if the unbeliever doesn't want to do that, then he doesn't want to he doesn't want us to prove our point because part of the demonstration is the positive presentation of the system and the inviting the unbeliever to taste and see, <laughs> so to speak. There right? you go. Yeah, it's like and Bonson says, you know, if the unbeliever doesn't want to excuse me. Oh man. Don't worry, have what, what you're doing. Where are my glasses? You know, <laughs> Bonson says How dare you hiccup on live YouTube? <laughs> Bonson says. If the unbeliever doesn't want to argue with you, is that a defect in my apologetic? Well, not no. at all. All the unbeliever is saying is, well, I don't want to be rational. I don't want to involve myself in you know logical considerations here. I don't want to be charitable. Right. Well, if you don't want to be charitable and rational, that says nothing about my argument, right? So get off the court, so to speak. You're right. Let's get the next person on the court and I'll play with them and we'll hash it out together. But if you yeah. don't want to be charitable and logical and reason with me in an open-minded way, um, then I I have no reason to argue with you. Apologetics is a defense. It's not an offense. So if you're not going to play, I'm just going to sit on the court playing defense. Who's the next opponent coming up, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not a defect in my system. Right. So so it requires you to play nice and actually respond to the invitation mm -hmm. to internally critique my worldview as part of the demonstration. Because yeah, I can lay out my system. transcendental reasoning. Right. If I, if I lay out my system and say, look, it accounts for intelligibility, be like, yeah, but uh, that doesn't prove you just laid out your system. Okay. So now jump in my system so I can show you, this is how well, I don't want to jump in because now, now the person has to actually engage in internal entertainment. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And if yeah. they're not going to entertain it, then you're not, I mean, that's it. You're not, you're not yeah. playing at that point. Right yeah. now, now in defense of the atheist and in defense of the skeptics, um, you did make a very important distinction between presuppositional ism and presuppositional ists. And there have been presuppositional ists that have not played nice on the apologetic field, so to speak. Um, no. They have used deceptive tactics. Um, I'm not against using a script. I know people say they have their presupp script. We all have scripts. Yeah. I mean, th yeah. there are things I want to say and I want to get to, and I, I give a line of questioning so that I can get to that point. Yeah. It helps. Um, but, it guides you. Yeah. 
Right. But there are people who use the methodology in a very disingenuous way to get kind of the logical and rational upper hand in an argument. And to that, mm -hmm. um, that's inappropriate and mm -hmm. uh, it should be called out. However, yeah. if you happen to engage with someone who's laying out their case and they're being genuine, we have goodwill towards one another and we invite you come in and internally critique the, the Christian worldview. When I debated Eric Murphy, who is, uh, um, I think it's, uh, Talk Heathen. He was from the Talk Heathen show. Uh, and he um, invited me on to do kind of a debate slash conversation when it finally clicked for him uh, to do um, a uh, internal critique. Then he tried to. And, and so so he says, fine, the idea of the Trinity is logically incoherent. And to my mind, I'm like, good. Now we're talking. Yeah, right. Critique. You there we get, go. Yeah. You get the idea now that I have a worldview, you have a worldview, mm -hmm. and everything you're going to say to me, I'm going to filter through my worldview. Everything I'm going to say to you, you're going to filter through your worldview. So now you need to jump into my worldview. Exactly. And yep. he tried to do that by um, critiquing the coherency of the Trinity. The problem is um, he didn't properly represent the Trinity, right? Mm -hmm. So I always tell people on my show one of the ways that you survive the internal critique is to know your theology. Yes. You want to survive the internal critique, you need to know your system. So, all right. Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, uh, I hope that's sufficient for people. I think we covered a, a, a lot there. Let's take a few moments kind of at the back end here to take some more questions. Is that okay? And then we'll wrap things up. I think this was excellent. Yeah. Um, I see Brian have... um, already kind of coming in with the first sheen objection. So, um, excellent. Yeah, we'll no, we'll, we'll, we'll get, get to it. I'm gonna, <laughs> there's, not, there's not a lot of questions here, but um, yeah. we'll go through some of them and, and hopefully it will be to everyone's satisfaction. And hey, you, you, you leave watching this episode and you're like, I don't buy it. Okay. I mean, that's fine. DM <laughs> we me. do. And we use it. And we try to, we try to yeah. use it consistently. We try to answer the objections and things like that. I mean, there's a difference between proof and persuasion. And we're fully aware of that. Um, all right. Real quick. This is not a question, but a comment. I want to give a shout out. Urban Reform Podcast is clarifying Jimmy Lee who I'll be having on tomorrow to talk about the Old Testament and the philosophy of evidence, um, is also an admin of that Facebook group I mentioned, the Reformed Presuppositional Apologetics, and he runs the Veritas Domain website, which has got some really good um, articles, outlines, teaching lessons on presuppositional apologetics that you guys definitely want to check out. That is the Veritas Domain. All right. Let's scroll down and see what we got here. Do, 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 do. You might be encouraged by this, Joshua. Mike Carr says, hello, good to see Mr. Pillows again. He speaks apologetics <laughs> philosophy in a way that I can grasp. And so that is super helpful because that's what it's all about. People grasping yeah, right. it and hopefully understanding it and using it effectively. Thank you that's so much from for Bonson. that. I, I just, you got to give him, you know, when you learn audibly instead of just reading books and articles, but you hear his voice and it's in a classroom setting, like, of course, yeah. you know, you're a teacher. It is so different because in a classroom setting, it's less formal, right? You get through all the big vocabulary words and the concepts sure. and it's down to earth language. And yeah. so I, I, I'm hoping I'm mirroring his way of how he would convey these things to his classes. And so I'm yeah. so glad I get to see messages like that where, oh, it's very clear. And I'm like, yes. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, Cesar, I think he's Hispanic. He's not, I'm Puerto Rican. I don't know. Yet. Sessa, okay, ask the question, who came up with the Christianity of uh, Christianity objection? Do you, I, I know it kind of goes back as far as like the early 80s, I think, uh, but I don't remember exactly the person who brought it up. I, I couldn't tell you either specifically. I know, um, I think it goes back before that because in Van Til's Festschrift, John Warwick Montgomery 
um, mm. who's a devout Lutheran brother, still alive, by the way. I think he's in his 90s. Wow. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's going, you know. <laughs> but he, he leveled a similar criticism um, that sort of mimics or follows in line with Christianity. Uh, and so you see the seeds of Christianity coming to fruition, even back as far as the 70s, maybe the 60s. Sure. So this criticism has been around for a while. And the problem is it hasn't been elaborated on. And Bonson, unfortunately, died um, shortly before social media. It's where this would get no more notoriety. So, Dude, um, imagine Bonson on Twitter, bro. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that's, pretty That's what would be going. He'd be banned and <laughs> he'd be going off and everything. You have been yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's it's been around for at least half a century, I would say, comfortably. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, the evil divide. Uh, can Joshua recommend some books on precept apologetics? Now I want to give you an opportunity to suggest that, but I want to let everyone who's listening know if you are fascinated with how Joshua explains his views and has a grasp on the methodology, I can speak for him that 90%, maybe he'll even say 99% of everything that he's learned has been listening to Bonson's lectures. He has an entire series on transcendental arguments. And so, and that's available for free right now. You can go to Sermon Audio and type in The Bonson Project, in which all of his audio teachings have been made available in categor categories for free. Spend hours and hours on that. Again, I mean, Bonson's not you know, the omniscient, all know, all knowing apologist, yeah. but he was a really solid teacher. Even if you disagree with him, he's a good teacher. And so even if you're a critic of presuppositionalism and you want to understand it, you could read the books that Joshua is going to suggest in a few moments, but check out the lectures. I think they, they kind of fill in some of the gaps that perhaps Bonson doesn't go into detail in some of the books. So I highly recommend the Bonson project at B-A-H-N-S-E-N project. All right. Why don't you suggest some books for, uh, for our listeners? Um, well, if we're beginning with a more um, elementary understanding, a more primitive level, a level of primer understanding, um, I would probably start with Jason Lyle's book, The Ultimate Proof of Creation, just because it has more of a practical, pragmatic, practical approach to this day and age. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's down to earth. It, it's focused around science and evolution and stuff like that, but it's thoroughly presuppositional. He compares worldviews. There's no such thing as neutrality. Right. Another hiccup. <laughs> um, so right. that would probably be the best one. Um, other than that, you can always ready by Greg Bonson is his syllabus book. That's his, that's the standard book. Always ready. Presuppositional apologetic stated and defended is I find to be just a complete masterpiece. The first half of it, it's very rigorous, but it is hardcore. And the story behind that book is really sad, but <clears throat> that yeah. would be good. And then Van Til's apologetic is his, um, last book his antemortem book which is like 800 pages long and that's an exhaustive basically uh, exposition of antil <clears throat> that's my that's actually my favorite uh isn't that it right there yeah i was like there it is i see that, it right there my, yeah. I, you can tell this one is my favorite Bonten <laughs> book yeah i actually have a really cool app called voice dream and i download yeah, books yeah. on pdf and it reads it, it not only does it read it to me in a high definition robotic voice but it actually breaks the PDF into chapters so that you can actually go to the different parts of the book. And I, I read this book in the morning. I have a 40 to 50 minute drive to work 
And yeah. so um, if you don't have time to lug this thing around, there are other ways to use your technology uh, to kind of digest a lot of this material. Yeah, you gave me, um, what was it called? Speechify. That's what you recommended to me a while ago. <laughs> I, voice stream is better now. I, yeah. I think it's, it, it's better in the way that it formats the stuff. I, I think I paid like 20 bucks. It's been the, the best 20 bucks that I, I, and you can listen to it while turning your phone off. You know, yeah. it's, it's awesome. So, and, and, um, the evil divide, there are other books like you're going to have to help me out here. Eli, I don't know his last, how you say his last name, Daniel Conde. I don't know how you pronounce that. I got, uh, um, I got he's book. roughly my age. You know, learn from Bonson as well. I'm not sure what his whole background is, but the folly of unbelief is his He's probably go. Oh, you promoted my book. It's pretty good. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he, he knows this stuff. I haven't read it. I haven't bought it or anything, but he is very solid in presuppositionalism and he knows his philosophy behind it. And that's his first book. And he's, gosh, he's got to be my age or younger. Always ready as well. That's always ready. That's the, that's the standard, you know, Magna Carta, if you will, of presuppositional apologetics. But yeah, I was just getting at there are we there are up up and coming authors as well, pushing the antithesis. That is the most elementary and systematic book by Bonson because at the end of every chapter you have a Q and A um, to test you. You have a glossary terms, right. and all the answers to the questions are in the back of the book, so you're not left in existential despair. But it's very <laughs> it's very. Um, straightforward it was based off of a class given to high school seniors who are about to go to college so it's catered to that sort of audience but yeah there are many books out there that you can get on this apologetic. all right um rob <clears throat> b asks the question does this argument help with in-house disagreement among christians not I sure would say what that no means. because if yeah. we're if we're if we're defining in-house as like interfamilial squabbles. Michael Butler always used that. We're, we're all a big family, but we squabble amongst, you know, Romans nine. Is it choice meats or is it, you know, something different? <laughs> you no, know, don't or do that. If Leighton ever watches this, he'll make it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love, I love him. Um, or, you know, or should we be pre-millennialist, post-millennialist and so forth? Um, the, a transcendental approach isn't catered to tell you that because a transcendental approach is only catered around necessary preconditions. Mm -hmm. And we can't know for certain, as much as you hate to admit it, which um, eschatology, for instance, is the correct one. We can exegete it. I am a firm post-millennialist. But um, in terms of in familial squabbles between Christians, um, this apologetic, this transcendental approach is not catered or meant to resolve those types of disagreements. This is a broad scope, metaphysical, wide ranging apologetic. It's not, it doesn't deal with the minutia of theological doctrines. Hmm, okay. Um, this is unorthodox for me to do, but I feel so inclined and I hope you don't mind. Uh, Alesar 86 says, if anyone could pray for me, I would appreciate it. I'm sick as a dog. God bless. I'm going to pray for you right now, if that's okay. I don't know who this person is. Uh, but uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus for uh, Alesar 86. Uh, you know um, the situation there. Um, feeling under the weather is never fun, but we know that you are a God who heals. You are a God who listens to prayer, Father God. And we should just pray in the name of Jesus on behalf of uh, this um, uh, this brother or sister. I'm not really sure. So uh, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, and your loving kindness towards us. We pray your will uh, in their life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We pray that uh, you feel better. I definitely resonate with that. I wasn't feeling very well a couple of weeks ago, and my wife 
is not feeling well tonight. So um, uh, prayers um, out to you. Yeah. That, is that uh, the totally off topic? Yeah. Is that a reference to Aragorn <laughs> in Lord of the Rings? Because that was his name in Lord of the Rings from Tolkien. And I'm not sure. I just, I, Maybe. I Lord of the I'm, not, I'm a nerd, but I'm not, that, I'm not that <laughs> much of a nerd. Like, I have to know now, is that from Lord of the Rings? Um, more, but anyway. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Uh, oh, Brian Stevens. Okay, Brian Stevens. Can anyone support the first premise of TAG? So um, I think this is associated with a conversation I had a while back um, on Clubhouse. We've been talking about Clubhouse so much tonight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in which I laid a, a transcendental argument out in deductive form. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was, uh, if, if knowledge is possible, the Christian worldview is true. Knowledge is possible, therefore the Christian worldview is true. Uh, you have the the first premise, which is basically that is defended um, in various ways. I actually have written out, and I don't have it in front of me now. Um, I have a, a deductive argument in defense of that premise, so I'll have to find it. Sorry, I mean people have been asking me because I I tried to um, I said I would get back to people. I've been so busy. I did write up a response. I'd have to maybe I might do a show where I just talk about the first premise. So I do apologize. I I can't. I don't have it in front of me right now. Um, Josh, would you, uh, would you yeah. engage that argument in that structure and uh, give at least the listeners something to chew on while I get my act together and eventually get to it? It's so <laughs> yeah. Busy. Well, yeah, this was on clubhouse last night <laughs> again. Yeah. It's all just coming back, but uh, it's okay. Yeah. It's fair. I did say I was going to get back to them and I, I've been sick past two weeks. I've been busy. I, I got to it, but I haven't, I don't have anything in front of me yeah. right now. Well, um, I already answered that. We answered that already, I think, twice. But uh, okay. I don't know if he was here for that. I'm not sure. Uh, but um, the way you support – the first premise would be if we incorporate the Christian worldview. In order for intelligibility to be the case, the Christian worldview must be true because its being true is a necessary precondition for us to have intelligible experience. Mm -hmm. And then someone like Brian comes along and says, oh, okay, great. Well, if that's all you're giving me, who cares? I want support for that premise. Well, as I've said earlier, what's the support? How do we prove that? It's standing on the Christian worldview. Take it for at what it stands for. What are the metaphysical and epistemological and ethical implications of it? And if you walk through that with scripture as the basis, as that backing, um, then you see that it supports the preconditions for intelligible experience. And so it's not deductively dependent or inductively dependent or abductively dependent. We're not probabilists here. All we're mm -hmm. asking is stand on my worldview and see where it takes you. What are the implications? We can make sense out of intelligibility if you take it for what it stands right. for. Right. Now, of course, the person can respond, dude, you don't prove that by quoting your scriptures. Actually, you do because it's the scriptures, the function of the scriptures and its worldview implications that actually give a metaphysical explanation of the actual state of affairs that provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. So that's part of what I mentioned when I was on, on uh, Clubhouse, that we lay out the Christian system. Now, if you agree with that, then you need to attack the premise, right? So suppose I say I lay out the Christian system. If the Christian God is metaphysically there and there is a, an epistemological connection through revelation, these sorts of things, you disagree with that. You now have to attack the truthfulness of the first premise. You don't attack the truthfulness of the first premise by hand waving and saying you don't prove anything by simply quoting your scriptures. Quoting the scriptures is part of laying out our system. Those are elements of the system that constitute essential presuppositions that uh, do in fact provide those undergirding pillars of intelligible experience. They're so they're uh, necessary. Yes. Necessary, that's like, yeah. that's like a skeptic coming up to you and saying, you know what? I don't believe you exist. 
and I want you to prove that you exist, but you can't assume it. Well, you have to assume it. You know, it's right. Descartes' argument. He didn't formulate it in a transcendental fashion, so he gets thrown against the rocks all the time. Right. But it is a transcendental argument, and all transcendental arguments are inherently circular. And so if that's the first time you're hearing that, then I, I don't mean to, you know, put you down, but that's that means probably it's time to read up on transcendental literature. All transcendental arguments are inescapably and of necessity circular because you have to assume the necessary precondition in order to even argue for it or against it. Well, I could avoid I could avoid being circular, Josh. Uh oh. Uh, David Direct acquaintance. <laughs> direct acquaintance, bro. <laughs> David, I know David's gonna watch this. David Palman, That's I don't fine. Know, is it Palman? I don't know. I love you. you. Yeah, he's great. But <laughs> yeah, if you're gonna just start with first principles, that's enough. We already had that discussion. You start with a subjective starting point and you have no objective verification for it. So, but anyway, um, yeah, the, the logic behind it, Brian, is stand on our worldview for the sake of the argument and it satisfies these preconditions. It's not analytic philosophy. It's not empirical. It's completely different from any philosophy we see today. We're not looking for logical coherence or consistency. Are, mm. are we attaining knowledge in um, our cognitive mental states or however you want to frame it? It's a completely different philosophy altogether. It's metaphysically laden. It's not epistemologically laden. And so when someone says, well, prove to me that, you know, rejecting Christianity involves self-contradiction or it's illogical. I, I have to tell you, I don't know exactly how to respond to that because that's not what Van Til's apologetic is catered around. It's not catered around cognitive states and it's not catered around epistemology in general. It's catered around metaphysics, what needs to be true in reality in order to make sense out of logic, in order to make sense out of contradictions to begin with. So it's right. it, that's part of the problem is we kind of talk past each other. It's a completely different philosophy. Right. Now, Brian uh, has a comment here, a follow-up comment here. He says, the Trinity, uh, which is an aspect of the Christian worldview, is not a necessity. There could be a four-person God, five-person God. Again, surprise, surprise. I don't mean this disrespectfully. I mean, this is an old hat. I mean, I would, uh, if he is interested in um, looking deep into this, um, I would highly um, point him to um, Brant Bosterman's work on the vindication of the Trinity and Christian paradox, uh, where he addresses specifically and in great detail, not just four-person or five-person, but he goes, if you read chapter nine, he goes into a multi-person oh, personal yeah. God and why those don't work. <laughs> He, he essentially argues why God must be three in persons. Um, so that that is laid out there in the book. But uh, do you have a thumbnail response to this or, or is that well, something that it takes a little time to unpack? Well, we can. Well, thank you for picking up this comment and thank Brian for making this comment, because this is, quite frankly, the first gene objection in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> Pick up again. Ugh, excuse me. <laughs> this is Christianity. This is what the video is about. Right. Um, and so then now we'll get into, man, golly, what's Don't worry, it, hap it happens, man. You just go with it. This is live. You just do it. Yeah. It's like you know, nothing you can do about it, but yeah. So this, what Brian is saying here, this is the Christian objection and right. this is what the video is about. So this would be, I guess, a good segue to turn into focusing on that at this point. Sure. All right. Um, Carlton <clears throat> e asks, is the resurrection metaphysically necessary for intelligibility? If so, how? Yes, because God made um, the world a certain way and he decreed it a certain way from eternity past. And so if we have everything in scripture being true from Genesis 3 onward, and then Christ doesn't resurrect, then we have an incomplete re uh, revelation or a, just a false revelation in general. Mm -hmm. It's impossible for Christ not to resurrect. Um, 
And in the same way, it's impossible for his revelation to be uh, fallible or to be incorrect. And so it's what Bansville says, it's a package deal. We right. have to argue for Christianity as a unit. If, again, if you want to tinker with small points like, well, um, were the Jews or were the Israelites held captive in, Israel, in Egypt for 500 years? Or was it like 498 or 501? Okay, you know, it could be figurative uh, numbering. But um, sure. there, this would be something that is metaphysically necessary because it entails the complete unity of the Godhead and of his revelation. Mm. All right, excellent. Uh, Carlton also says, what pieces of Christianity are necessary for intelligibility? For instance, I would think soteriology, Calvinism, Arminianism, Arminianism isn't part of it. What pieces are? Uh, you're going to get different answers to that based on who you talk to. Like if you talk to people in the Reform pub, oh man. But for those who are not as <laughs> I dogmatic. I have been on the pub in a long time. Is, dude, I, I, left, I left that place and that was just, it was like <laughs> this pool. I'm, just, I'm sorry. Um, All right. What are what pieces of Christianity are necessary? Um, things like the triunity of God, the plurality of God, and the unity of God. Um, mm -hmm. The immutability of God, the absoluteness of God, because he's the source of all truth and knowledge. Um, the sovereignty of God, the omnipotence of God. Um, nothing is above him. He's sovereign over everything. There is no room for chance. The omniscience of God, because in him are deposited all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, the providence of God, because if God wasn't providential, we're stuck with the problem of induction now, aren't we? He said to Noah, well, seed time and harvest will continue after the flood, right? As long as he's in power. But if he's not providential and he's really careless, it doesn't really matter. So mm. we could all just die in the next three seconds for all we know. So things of that nature, you could list all of God's attributes as a satiety and, and so forth. But I would say, just think of the attributes of God. And there you go. There's a, at least a mostly filled list. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Brian has another one. I'm kind of going down the line here and um, I like Brian's well, question. He, he asks uh, good questions here. He says, which is more plausible? Paul made up a story about the 500 or there were actually 500 witnesses to the risen Jesus. And the reason why I want this question here is because this is a wonderful opportunity to highlight the importance of one's presuppositions. And this question is packed with presuppositions. So um, how would you address that um, from a presupposition well, perspective? Yeah, Brian what, what, Brian, what a person takes to be plausible or implausible is going to be determined by their overall world and life view. Mm -hmm. Like if we think through what we know about the world, what is this the same thing or is this something? Yep, different? it's just a follow-up part to his question. Oh, which here. seems more plausible. Okay, like if we, if think through the world and what we know about the world and we win this. Okay, same thing. Yeah, so... What a person takes as plausible or implausible is determined by that person's worldview. So right. I, I, I don't know if he's an atheist or what, but if, you know, if Brian's an atheist and he's on the other side of this table and I'm a Christian and we're talking about this, well, to him, it's going to be implausible, but to me, it's going to be plausible. We have the same exact evidence, if you will. We, we cite the same sources, but we come to different, you know, cognitive states, if you want to put it that way. I think it's plausible. He thinks it's implausible. Well, how do we rectify the problem? How do we solve the problem? We could just keep hashing it out with empirical inductive means and this seems more probable because of this, this, and this, or it's not because of this, this, and this. But ultimately, what are we going to be debating? When it comes to presuppositions, when it comes to Van Til's transcendental argument, we're going to be debating which worldview can even make sense out of something to be plausible to begin with. Like if, if someone comes along and posits a worldview that's just sheer chaos and chance, and that this is all just illusory, then the whole concept of plausibility or implausibility is completely meaningless. So to even talk about it is, is moot. It's stupid. 
And mm -hmm. so what we ultimately are going to get at is which metaphysical scheme, which worldview can even make sense out of this concept that we call plausible or implausible? Which worldview makes sense out of evidence? Which worldview makes sense out of uh, numbers, the number 500 and of history and so forth? So we can hash the plausibility of it out over a cup of coffee, but ultimately we're going to go back to worldviews. Okay, excellent. Now I want to spend one, uh, two more points on Brian, and then we're going to move on uh, yeah. to other people's questions. He's such a good guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I mean, these are good points, and these if, are good questions. He, yeah, I if like he's these. asking genuinely. I want to, I want to make sure we we address it here. So Brian says, my only objection to Christianity is that there isn't good enough evidence for it. It requires faith, as does every other religion. And then he follows up with, oh. And don't go precept apologetics. Just listen to precept of other religions. Again, this is nothing new. This has been addressed right, yeah. in Bonson. It's been addressed, and I think quite sufficiently. Um, even if I wasn't a presuppositionalist, I'd say, yeah, they kind of answered it from their perspective. I could see this is this is all old stuff, which, again, yeah. doesn't mean it's not a good question. It is a good question. Uh, good but question. don't go precept apologetics. Just listen to precept <clears throat> of other religions. You'll see they use the same tricks as Christian precept apologists. So if it doesn't work for them, it doesn't work for you. How would you respond to that? Well, we have to ask, why doesn't it work for them? And the answer to that is, as I kept going back now, stand on their worldview. And at one point or another, they're going to lack providing these uh, preconditions for intelligible experience. They won't be able to justify one here or there or many. Right. And again, as I've said, now stand on the Christian worldview. You've talked to the Buddhist presuppositionalist and the Muslim presuppositionalist, and their worldviews are defective at some certain points. Now, come stand on my worldview and, and just entertain it for the sake of the argument as it stands. And I can show you how my presuppositional argument works because it satisfies the preconditions of intelligible experience, unlike right. a Buddhist presuppositionalist or whatever you may have. Yeah. Um, and so I forgot what his previous comment was. It had something to do with, oh, it, it there's no evidence for it. It's faith-based. Right. Um, again, we're going to go back to what worldview needs to be true to make sense out of the thing, this thing we call evidence, the notion of evidence to begin with. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of like this comment more because it keeps going back to what we're talking about. Stand on the Christian yeah. worldview. You're right. Other presuppositionalists from other religions, they don't work because they fail at one point or another. But if you stand on the Christian worldview, we can justify intelligible experience. That's right. Okay. Very good. Thank you for that, Brian. Appreciate it. <laughs> Caesar clarified he is Mexican. It's all right. He's Mexican. I'm Puerto <laughs> Rican. We could still be friends. <laughs> Listen, I'm Puerto Rican. I was raised in rice on rice and beans, but dude, there is a Mexican restaurant around the block. There, by the <laughs> way, in both directions, there are two amazing Mexican restaurants, like 10 minutes from my house, and we go to both of them. It is amazing. So you guys got the tacos, you guys got, you know, enchiladas, bro. So I you you were brother. All right. Okay. So uh, Caesar asked the question, would either of you argue that Jesus gave a transcendental argument anywhere in scripture? I have some thoughts. Um, if you don't mind I, me sharing my thoughts and maybe. Yeah, go ahead because thoughts. I know there is a place. I remember there's someone posted the argument, but I, I do not remember. And I'm sure you would have more. Um, well, I mean, I mean here's the thing. I don't think the Bible gives a cosmological argument. No. It doesn't give it an argument in a formal sense. Um, yeah. The Bible doesn't give a um, an argument from design. It tells us that God designed everything and that the heavens declare the glory of God and that we should draw proper conclusions. But in terms of an argument, say with premises and a conclusion arguing for, I don't think the Bible lays that out in that very rigorous kind of way. 
However, there is uh, what I would call a transcendental principle all throughout scripture that can be deduced from uh, truths of the Christian worldview as found in scripture. So for example, um, the metaphysical foundation that Van Til started with. Um, so if you think in terms of metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, the three main branches of, of a worldview, uh, when we start with metaphysics, Van Til started with the essential metaphysical foundation of the creator-creature distinction. And that comes straight from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That statement right there entails there is a difference between creator and created. So we make those metaphysical categories. You take that with how God has revealed himself, the nature of God, what is implied by that with respect to creatures and how we relate to them. And there is transcendental principles that we derive from the whole host of propositions in scripture that tell us about the nature of reality, how we know the effects of sin upon the mind. All these things, I think, inform our defense of the faith and it informs it in such a way that I think it entails a transcendental principle that we should be following when we argue with unbelievers in a way that leaves them without excuse. Those are my thoughts. Uh, feel free to share your thoughts, Joshua. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking on <clears throat> right now. Uh, I'm trying to find the exact verse just so I get extra credit, you know. Um, <laughs> I guess I can't find it. Oh, here it is. After the um, resurrection of Christ, before he ascends, um, who does he appear to? Well, he appears to all his disciples, but and Luke 24, 45, Christ appears to them or is with them. And, and it says Christ opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them that this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And Bonson said that would, that had to have been the greatest exegesis in the whole history of mankind to have Christ, the word himself exegeting his own revelation. So mm -hmm. even in Luke, for instance, after the death and resurrection um, of Christ, and we're talking about, well, is that metaphysically necessary? Christ walks through all of scripture with his disciples, why it had to come to pass. So yeah, there are transcendental principles um, all throughout scripture. And I know there's an argument. I got to find it somewhere, but I'm yes. sure someone formulated one. No worries. No worries. Now so. you do not have to address this, but I just want to point something out. Brian says, I'd be interested in seeing the defense of the first premise. We <laughs> literally just went and took time doing that. Okay. He says, I am reviewing this tag argument and asking for support of the first premise. We literally just addressed that. So you need to go back and listen. If you disagree, then you disagree. But there was presented and explained. Okay. Um, so we're not going to address it again. And again, just thank you for sharing your comments there. All right. Uh, let's see here. Do, 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 do. Uh, there's a lot of debate before going we went on. live. You, That's good. Before we went live, you were like, yeah, I don't know. I don't think we'll get that many questions with Christianity. And look at all this. <laughs> well, Brian yeah. is a champion. He's been giving us like half of them. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that's fine. I, I appreciate it. <clears throat> um, I don't see. Well, uh, I mean, someone's mentioning a question I from Paul and I didn't get it. So, um, I want to get it. So if I don't find this Paul that people are referring to, I'm not trying to avoid <laughs> Paul. I just can't see where his question is. Do you see a Paul question? Are you? Do you have a capacity to scroll through? And uh, mm, no, I don't, I don't see, see a Paul. He says I'm hoping he gets to Paul's question. No, oh, I'm sorry, I um, can't see Paul. My well, if, is it okay if I, I address Brian one little time? Yeah, yeah time go go for it. <clears throat> when people. Uh, kind of struggle with, well, how do we prove the transcendental necessity of whatever it is we're arguing for? And I've been saying over and over again, stand on the Christian worldview and we can make sense of 
these necessary preconditions for intelligibility. And it seems that he's not satisfied with that. So it's like, okay, well, what if we just narrow it down, right? Because Van Til's transcendental approach is a holistic worldview. We're coming to the table with zillions of different propositions, all part of the Christian worldview. But if we just take one example, let's say um, someone says, I have to exist, going back to Descartes. In me existing metaphysically, externally, objectively, materially is a necessary precondition for me to even give the argument. Mm -hmm. um, and now that's, so that's the major premise of Descartes' transcendental formulation. And Brian would come along and say, well, okay, but you're making the claim. I, I want you to substantiate it. How do you prove it? And the answer is, well, just listen to what I'm saying. Stand on my ground. I have to objectively materially exist in order to even give the argument. And if you reject it, you're in, it's entailing self-contradiction or refutation. It's self-falsifying to reject the simple um, truth that you have to materially exist. And so if we just take that one little example instead of the whole Christian worldview to how do we substantiate that transcendental truth? Just think about it. It's like really that simple. It's mm -hmm. self-refuting to say, I'm thinking, but I don't exist at all. Well, that's self-contradictory. It's a transcendental necessity. Stand on that right. position. Oh, wow, I do have to exist in order to you know, doubt or to think at all and realize mm -hmm. it must be true because the contrary is impossible. I hope that helps. I'm trying to narrow it down some, but yeah, no worries. No worries. Um, okay. We'll take a few more and then we'll wrap things up. I think you're doing an excellent job and I appreciate it. Um, and I know folks are enjoying it as well. We haven't so. even gotten to like the meat and potatoes of Christianity. <laughs> oh, well, hey, I've got time. If you want to, if you want to tackle another aspect of it before we wrap it up. Yeah. Well, I mean, just real quick, if I could give like a, a short summation, because yeah, as ahead. it's been historically formulated and by historically, I mean, maybe 50 years. Okay. You know, the Christian says, again, Van Til, you've done a great job. Your argument gets the job done, but that means it's only sufficient. It's not necessary. I have a quadrinity over here, but everything else is the same, but I have a quadrinity. And so if I take it on that approach, if you stand on my worldview um, as metaphysical, because his is, as we've already talked about, I can make sense out of um, everything as well, even the one and the many. And so... That's the problem. That's the that's the criticism. Now we have to butt heads. Okay, well, how do we refute that? And granted, we had two days preparation, and I'm getting up at like 4:30 every morning. Yeah, Joshua took right this. Joshua took this on a very like last minute, as because uh, I know he does a great job explaining. I was like, you know what, it would be great to have Joshua on to talk about this, and so that's why. But he he said yes, and he only had two days to kind of rehash all of it. So I appreciate it, but go for it. The Answer the, the problem has been answered by Van Til and Bonson already. And the first route is to say, well, where is the Christian getting his worldview from? If he's he taking the Bible, because remember, Christianity is offering Christianity. He can't just start with another book. He's taking the Bible and say, okay. Well, is he what's he doing with it? Is he building it up block by block, you know, unit by unit, and making it and tinkering it with his own configuration? And if the answer is yes, if that's what the Christian says he's doing, then what Bonson says is. Well, just look at the authority by which he's proceeding as apologetic. It's purely subjective, right? He's We, Vanceville says, we take the Bible as a unit on its own authority. And so if a Christian critic comes along and says, no, it's different in this regard or this regard, and you ask them, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And they say, well, I took this part out or I inserted something here. You have the Vantillian starting with God authority, objective authority, absolute authority, and then the Christian starting with subjective authority, and subjectivism eventually leads 
to skepticism. So it kind of ends in like, oh, well, we can just ignore you because we already have the answer. Um, and that's been received with backlash, even from Michael Butler, who was studying under Bonson. Critics sure. have said, well, okay, Mr. Vantillian, just because you can show that the Christian has a subjective authority and starting point doesn't necessarily mean that his argument or his metaphysical view um, is wrong. Say, so, okay. Let's say the Christian says, no, 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 I start with the authority of the Bible too, just like you do. But there's, it's a quadrinity, you see. It's not a trinity. It's four, not three. What's the question? How do we prove that Vantillian Orthodox Christianity is true? And you know what the answer is? I just can't realize. You just exegete scripture. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's it. And that's all you need to do to refute the Christian. And immediately, and the reason no one likes that answer is because they'll say, well, wait a minute, Josh. It's scripture that's in question. So if you go to scripture, you're going to the same scripture he's citing, but he comes to a different conclusion. So right. you're not going to persuade him to change his mind. But what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that critic is conflating proof and persuasion. The two are not um, coterminous. They don't depend right. on one another. I can exegetically prove Orthodox Christianity to the Christian critic and have him be totally unpersuaded by it, but I still prove that my position is true. That's right. It is not a defect in my argument or exegesis or my Vantillian version of tag, if I can't convince my um, unbelieving opponent, if whether he's a Christian or a heretic. And this is how you would respond to the flavor of Christianity that borrows the Bible as part of the revelation, but tweaks important metaphysical <clears throat> elements. Yeah, it has to tweak important ones, because if it's if it tweaks minor ones, then we're just back to familial squabbles again, you know, eschatology right. and things like that. It has to right. tweak something important. And so technically speaking, how do I refute the Christian, I just exegete scripture, and then I have the Spirit's witness as a backing to that. Mm -hmm. And the reason people don't like that is because, well, that's not convincing. Well, who cares? Well, hold on, let me back up there. I don't, I don't want to make, you know, make this muddied or anything. Okay. You have to have a reformed understanding of salvation and conversion when you do apologetics. If you're going to critique Van Til from a reformed perspective, I don't have any power in me to change my opponent's mind. I, I can't do it. It's not my prerogative. I don't have that ability. Only God has that prerogative and that ability. So what's the aim of apologetics? Well, it's to glorify God, of course. It's to follow the biblical mandate. But from a Reformed view, from a Vantillian perspective, the job of apologetics isn't to persuade, 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 and see if we can win them over. It's to simply give a biblical defense. You can't change the opponent's heart, but you can shut their mouth in a respectful mm -hmm. and gentle way. Sure. And so I'm very meticulous here. How do we refute and prove that our position of Orthodox Christianity is true? We just exegete scripture. Oh, well, mm -hmm. you haven't changed his mind. Okay, well, that's not a defect in my proof. Yeah, but you need to be persuasive. Well, it's good to be persuasive in apologetics, but it's not incumbent or imperative that I be holistically persuasive because I have some power in me to do it. That's only right. God's doing. And so if you're not satisfied that my exegesis doesn't persuade the Christian, you're not really complaining with me. Ultimately, you're complaining with God. Why hasn't God changed his heart yet? Mm -hmm. And then another problem, and I know I'm going to keep going, was sure. it's the same thing with any other dis theological disagreements. Oh, look, there's a Calvinist and an Arminian debating Romans 9. And look, the Arminian is showing that it's choice meets in Romans 9. And, and look, the Calvinist isn't buying it. So obviously the Arminian's um, argument is, is defective. 
well, no, that's not true. And I know I'm siding with the Armenian. He can give a an objective proof, exegetical proof, regardless of whether or not the Calvinist agrees with it. Right. Proof is not the same as persuasion. So what's the short answer to refuting Christianity? You just exegete scripture. And how do we make sure that's verified? We have the spirits witnessing to it. He doesn't like that. That's not my prerogative to change his mind. All right. Proof All right. Is Very not good. All right. Well, we are at the one hour and 27 mark, so I am not going to take any more questions. I do apologize. I hope you guys felt that I was doing my best to get to a bunch of them. I think Joshua did an excellent job. Um, laying out all of the nuts and bolts of this issue. Now, of course, is there more to be covered? Of course, there's more to be covered. Is there something that Joshua didn't cover? Of course, there are elements that he might not have covered. Uh, but I hope that this discussion has given you something to chew on so that you, if you're a supporter of presuppositionalism, you have some uh, uh, information that helps you better understand the argument and how it might respond to a Christianity objection. And if you're a critic of presuppositionalism and you're honestly kind of trying to understand it so that you can then disagree with it, um, hopefully some of your questions were answered and you have a better context to do that uh, in a meaningful way. Obviously, we think you'll fail in doing it, but it's better that you understand our position, right? So I hope it was helpful uh, both ways uh, around there. Um, Joshua, is there anything you'd like to say before we get off this live stream? And I just want to say thank you so much. You did an excellent job. Well, thank you for having me again. Um, I'm sad because, like I said, I love this stuff, man. And I commend these critics for having a basic understanding of what's going on here. I could go for another 10 hours probably, you know. And I've been up since 4.30 this morning. Um, hey, wait, maybe we could do a part two. I would love to. I, I, the thing I sent you, I mean, I still have all these other yeah. arguments that go that show why Christianity fails as a transcendental critique. Yeah. But I, I hope that in the time that we have had, I have been able to convey some of the fundamental tenets of what tag sure. is. How do we prove premise one? You know, stand on the worldview. Um, what Christianity is and how do we refute it? Well, just through exegesis. Proof is not the same as persuasion. Um, conversion is an act of God alone. So mm -hmm. I don't have to prove or persuade my opponent when it comes to salvation, right? I mean, and I know I don't want to keep going back to it, but sure. we want to be persuasive in other areas. Like, you know, and I don't mean to be dark, but if someone's about to jump off a bridge because they want to end their life, I'm not going to sit, you know, scream at them and belittle them. I want to be, no, it's going to be okay. I want to be persuasive, but that's mm -hmm. worlds apart from salvation. It's completely different. Right. Um, and you have to recognize that salvation is an act of God alone. All our job is to do as apologists is to be biblical and faithful mm -hmm. to scripture and let God do the rest. We can't open the heart of the critic, but we can shut his mouth in a respectful way. Excellent. Thank you so much. Joshua sent me an outline of what he intended to go through. Maybe if we do a part two, we can specifically just walk through your outline and you can unpack yeah. it in more detail. It's but more I think philosophical yeah. here, but we definitely, I mean, why not do more Christianity stuff? There's not a lot of videos out there that cover it. So we might as well it's try fun. to tackle it. And we, we could have like a, someone from clubhouse, if they wanted to join in, we could have like a three-way call and an atheist <laughs> and we could actually have a discussion with them. I think that'd be really cool. That'd be pretty cool. Well, thank you so much guys for listening. And thank you so much, Joshua, for um, giving me so much of your time. And I enjoy every time you come on the channel and, um, we're definitely going to have you back on for a Christianity round two. Um, and of course, if you want to see more of Joshua, um, let me know. And I will continue to nag him to come on and cover all sorts <laughs> of topics related to uh, theology and apologetics. With one um, day I notice next time. That's right. I'll try to give him a, a more, uh, more time to prepare. But, um, he's yeah, I hope guy. I did well. I wanted to say, I wanted to close with that. 
I hope I could articulate whether you agree with me or not. I hope I could articulate this in a very perspicuous way um, and a very charitable way and that I could make Van Til more understandable and less abstract and to be as incisive as Bonson taught me to be. So excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much everyone for listening and behaving in the comments. I very much appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, until next time guys, which is tomorrow. Um, stay tuned for that. We're going to be talking about the old Testament and the philosophy of evidence uh, with Jimmy Lee. And uh, that's tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Uh, but until then, take care and God bless. Bye-bye.